Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Sarah Manavis in London. It's Friday, the 10th of September. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, Emily's away this week, but fortunately, given this is going to be an episode on the US, I'm very pleased to be joined by our American colleague, Sarah, as co-host. Welcome as co-host, Sarah, to this mighty task. I'm very delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. We're going to get stuck into our topic in a second. I just want to begin by drawing listeners' attention to the very exciting news that we have a new look, new statesman. The latest issue, which is out now, is a product of a long process of redesign, which we're very confident um, makes the New Statesman a more visually compelling read, updates our look. We've changed some of the, the structures inside, and it's a really fantastic read with some very important articles. We have our new contributing writer and former guest on this podcast, Adam Tooze, on the future of American power. It's, it's a counterintuitive essay that will I think, make many people think differently about that subject once they've read it. We also have Lena Dunham on Britney Spears. We have uh, Tony Blair's former chief of staff, Jonathan Powell, on the 9-11 anniversary. So very much in there to read and think about. So I would strongly recommend that everyone take a look at that. While that is naturally the most important thing that's happened in the world this week, Sarah, would you like to suggest anything else that has caught your attention? Well, I actually have quite a cultural meets political one, which listeners will probably not know, but can maybe figure out from my surname that I'm half Greek and not in the way that Americans pretend to be from a European country because their great great grandfather was from there. I actually am half Greek. And Greece was in a national period of mourning in the last week because of the death of the composer and political figure, Mikis Theodorakis. He is most known for writing Zorba the Greek, the song, and or he scored the film Zorba the Greek, and then from which the song that we all know and love is from. And he was also an extremely big resistance to the military regime in Greece. During the 20th century, his songs were banned by police in certain parts of Greece during the dictatorship. And yes, he sadly passed away. And I think I just wanted to pay homage to this, this person who just held a very big part of Greece's cultural memory, but also its political memory over the last 70 years, really. Yeah, 
Absolutely. My moment of the week was the protests in support of Brazil's far-right president, Jair Bolsonaro, which took place on the country's Independence Day on Tuesday. Over 100,000 gathering in various Brazilian cities, dressed in the green and yellow of the country's flag. And this, this was meant to support his attacks on the country's Supreme Court. And this sort of adds to growing concerns among the opposition, but also internationally about what might happen at next year's presidential election in which Bolsonaro is going up against the left-wing politician Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro said recently, I have three alternatives, being arrested, getting killed or victory. And the concern is that he will attempt to do what Donald Trump tried to do earlier this year and hold on to power even in the event of an election loss, albeit in a country with without the strength of the institutions that helped protect the American Republic earlier this year. So I think that was a big moment. And for more on on that, you can, of course, go back and listen to the episode that Emily and Ida recorded with Nick Burns talking about Lula's return and Brazilian politics. So I'd recommend that. Well, we're now joined for the second time on World Review by the journalist and author Evan Osnos, who is a staff writer at The New Yorker and also the author of Wildland, The Making of America's Fury, which is out on September the 14th in the US and September the 16th in the UK. And seeing as we're coming up to the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, he's a very relevant person to talk to on this. And his book and the themes of his book make a very good backdrop to thinking about the anniversary. So Evan, welcome back to World Review. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be back. So let's start with the anniversary and the meaning of the September 11 attacks historically. I suppose my first question is, how, in your view, was the world of September 12th, 2001, different from the world of September 10th, 2001? It was profoundly different in a way that we didn't even fully appreciate. I I have to say, on the day of September 11th, I happened to be in Washington. I was a few miles from the Pentagon, and I was on my way to the airport, and I'm listening to the radio, and the news comes over. And of course, no flights were taking off. So we turn around and go back. And I ended up covering the events of that day. And there is this one moment of that day that lingers very prominently, in my memory at least, which is that members of the US Congress gathered on the steps of the Congress that day, that afternoon, and sang, God bless America. And it was this moment that captured the mood in the air at that particular instant, which was that sort of desire for unity and that sense of resolve and purpose. And one cannot now look at that without thinking also of the events so many years later and the degree of division. And in many ways, understanding today's political culture means going back to that moment of September if not September 11th afternoon, but September 12th, and the beginning of a set of political processes that have now played out over the course of the last 20 years. I wanted to ask about that, like what you say with these sort of things, these moments that we had, or this feeling that we had in the wake of this attack. Something I was thinking about over the last week is reflecting on what we now think of as our cultural memory of 9-11 in 2021, versus what we thought our cultural memory of 9-11 was in 2011. Do you see, like, with what's happened in the last 10 years um, and just the political landscape in the United States, do you think that the cultural reflections or the cultural memory of 9-11 has changed from the 10th anniversary versus the 20th anniversary? Yes, actually. And I I think I would actually argue that it's 
become a more productive conversation this time around at the 20th and the 10th. And what I mean is, I've been struck already as we get into this moment. There have been a number of sort of very intelligent pieces of writing that have appeared in places like the Washington Post, in the Atlantic, that are reckoning with America's decisions in the months and years after 9-11 about how the U.S. conducted the war on terror, about what it meant for America's values, about the decisions to go into war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and ultimately the the ways in which we did or did not make intelligent political choices and the ways in which we were really, let's be blunt, but doing damage to our own values, our own moral credibility around the world with Abu Ghraib, with torture at the hands of the U.S. government. And I think what's changed most deeply, Sarah, in the years in between was that in the beginning, we described 9-11 in our cultural memory as something that happened to us. And we were, we were victims in that story. And what we've come to recognize is that we were also then at the beginning of a period when we were agents ourselves, and we ended up making choices, making political decisions and doing things that were quite active and in the end were quite damaging. And I I think that kind of conversation has been surprising and is very healthy, actually. I wonder to what extent the the memory of 9-11 is turning into part of history, because one of the striking things about the coverage, and you mentioned some of this, Evan, is the reminder of the the family still grieving, the lives still transformed, the raw wounds of, of something that happened those two decades ago. And yet at the same time, it seems to me that people now becoming adults were born after that event, we're almost a generation away. It's, it's in that middle ground between being part of our current events and our current affairs and slipping into history. I wonder if that sort of 20-year mark puts us in a transitional moment in how we think about 9-11. Yes, I, absolutely. Actually, I think that's a great way to think of it because if you take my example, my life, I was born in 1976. And 20 years before I was born, it was roughly the period of the Cuban Revolution. And so you could imagine that somebody born after 9-11 would have that same kind of attenuated relationship to the event, by which I mean that what one thinks of the event is shaped very much by who is doing the telling and who is doing the application of the political valence. And yeah, I could grow up being told that the Cuban revolution was either a great thing or a terrible thing, depending on who I'm listening to. And I think 9-11 in some ways occupies this strange kind of cultural purgatory where everybody obviously agrees that the attack itself was wretched. And then at the same time, there is this very active and quite fierce debate about the conduct and the perception that the United States has had since then. I'll give you one. I find this very compelling, this one piece of data that I came upon at one point a few years ago. There was a survey done in 2016 of Americans in which people were asked to estimate, now 15 years after 9-11, asked to estimate what share of the country is Muslim. And Americans on average estimated one in six. And the real number is one in a hundred. And it was a demonstration to me of the way in which that event had pinballed through our collective perception and self-awareness and had produced these really bizarre distortions in which Americans, some people were afraid of Sharia law in ways that obviously the facts could not support on the ground, but it had become this huge feature of our politics and, and changed us in ways that we didn't even talk about on the surface every day. Well, I was actually just going to ask about two th- two elements, I guess you brought up there. And, and I guess 
put together that the development of that conversation and the kind of assumptions that people have around 9-11 and the way that we think about it has changed over time. And something I really did want to talk about was the left and right divide over how we think about 9-11. Because I think often we think about the development of this conversation. And I guess the presumption is that's a conversation that's developing on like the liberal left. And, you know, the liberal left's also had a lot of problems around the conversation around 9-11 in the years following. The left-wing blogosphere actually had a lot of conspiracy theories about 9-11 and that kind of thing. And that kind of anti-Bush sentiment bled into other more, I guess, what you would say problematic ideas. And I just wondered if you see there as a great distinction between how the conversation around 9-11 has developed over the last 20 years on the right versus on the left. And if you see that as quite distinct, or if it's similar. You know, it's interesting. I have started to pay attention a little bit to the way in which the anniversary is commemorated. And I I would pay attention, for instance, to places that seem to me far from Washington and how were they experiencing it. So over the last few years, long before the 20th anniversary, I took note that small towns in places like West Virginia, which are predominantly conservative, would be having these occasions of commemoration, often saying essentially, remember our heroes. And what struck me about it was to state the obvious that there have been a whole range of different moments in American life that have, on a sheer numerical basis, taken much more American life, particularly during the pandemic. But that event resides in the memory, particularly among conservative Americans, as a period in which the United States was summoned to its full powers. And that's obviously very different than how it feels on the left, which is that I think the view by and large, is that the U.S. after 9-11 unleashed some of its own political demons, that the instincts that we have towards militarism or towards abuses of power or towards discrimination, that those suddenly were given full reign. And you don't hear that, actually, on the right. You hear that this was a period in which the United States rose to the challenge. So what I think is fascinating about this, and you've hit on something important, Sarah, which is that I think actually, even if there had not been September 11th, if there had not been those attacks, that the cultural forces that were leading to this kind of bisection of the culture were going to present themselves one way or another. And it happened to be that it was refracted through that event, but that was never necessary. I think something else would have happened that would have led us into this period in which we have such a clear parting of the paths. That is really interesting in that I I don't mean to move the conversation on from 9-11, but even just thinking about your book and thinking about the Capitol Hill riots in January. Yeah. I think it is sometimes hard for people maybe to think about the fact that those two things have a link or and that link maybe being and and maybe I'm um, I'm misrepresenting your book, but that there was that cultural momentum. Yeah. whether or not 9-11 was going to happen. And that's something I have been having conversations about the legacy of conspiracy theories about 9-11 and that impact on modern American culture now for the last few weeks. And that was the thing that pretty much everyone I spoke to said was 9-11 sure did help yeah. encourage those elements of the culture that were maybe under the surface or not quite as prominent come out, but that that they were there and they were going to be coming out anyways. I totally agree with that. I think one of the things that I came to realize as I worked on the book was this sense that 
there are these moments like 9-11 or the election of Donald Trump as president that become locations in our memory or our understanding of how things happen. But that can sometimes also obscure what's actually going on, which is that there were these other forces in play that attached to that event or that were accentuated by it. But those weren't the origin moments. And certainly, if you're talking about January 6th, I was thinking, I went down there that day as a journalist to cover it for the New Yorker. And I'm, I'm sitting there, honestly, trying to absorb just what is actually happening in front of me. And one of the, the really dominant impressions that I had was that one of the last times that I was standing outside the Capitol for any long period of time talking to people was a long time earlier. It was eight years earlier when the government shut down. You'll remember in 2013, for the first time in, in years, the U.S., the U.S. Congress shut down the government for a, an internal political fight that had been basically created by Ted Cruz. And I'm simplifying it for the sake of our sanity. But anyway, the, the point being that that moment actually, you, you can't understand January 6th without understanding the kind of long run political effect of other moments in our politics, like the decision to shut down the government for the sake of essentially a moment of political vanity and campaign fundraising. And that kind of thing was contributing to this broadening cynicism in our politics. And it was both a sign of it and I think also a contributor to it. And January 6th was the final inferno. I shouldn't say final, actually, but was the inferno in which a lot of that was finally unleashed in a visible, a horrible way. But it was not something that grew only out of out of the experience of 9-11. Well, Sarah's brought us onto your book, and I think now's a good time to, to go into a bit more depth on it. And you tell a story of America as it changed and as it developed between those two moments of trauma, between 9-11 and January 6th. And you tell that story through three places, Greenwich, Connecticut, Clarksburg, West Virginia, and Chicago, Illinois, places that are obviously very significant for you and your life. Talk to us about those places and what your engagement with them revealed over the course of writing this. I've lived in each of those three places. It's why I chose them, because my sense was I could only really measure any change over time if I knew what they had been before, rather than just parachute in for the first time. Greenwich, Connecticut is a suburb of New York City, obviously a very prosperous place. It has been really since the Industrial Revolution. But one of the things that is quite apparent and really dramatic over the last 20 years has been the degree to which it has just raced ahead in income terms from the rest of the United States. In very concrete terms, there, over the last 20 years, the growth of the hedge fund industry has been felt very visibly in Greenwich. It's nicknamed the hedge fund capital of the world. And at one point, there was a ranking of the 20 biggest hedge fund managers in the United States who made, on average, about $207 million in the previous year, not over the course of their whole careers, but literally in one year, they'd made that much. And 10 out of the 25 lived in my town. And so I, I wanted to understand what I could gather about the effect of what, you know, we often talk about people being left behind, but actually, if you want to understand income inequality in the United States and the effects of it, you really actually have to focus on those who raced ahead. And, and Greenwich helped me do that. I, I wrote about Clarksburg, West Virginia as well, because Clarksburg is a small city in the northern part of the state. It was my first job out of college. I worked at a little newspaper in Clarksburg called The Exponent Telegram. And the thing that is really noticeable is when I was there, when I arrived in 1999, it was entirely Democratic, big D Democratic territory. The, the whole congressional delegation was Democrats. People still hung pictures of FDR on their living room walls. He had helped West Virginia to a great degree during the Great Depression. And there was this long 
feeling of gratitude. And that has just flipped entirely on its head. West Virginia is now arguably the most reliable Republican territory. This has happened just all in the course of 20 years. And there's a lot of explanations for it. Partly has to do with the decline of the coal industry. But really, I think the thing that people overlook and that is an important piece of it is the the way in which people in Clarksburg feel as if the Democratic Party stopped paying attention to them, stopped caring about them. And the thing that lingers in my memory is that you know, in 1960, John F. Kennedy, when he was running for president, visited Clarksburg, and so did his brother, Bobby Kennedy, and Ted Kennedy. And Clarksburg kind of mattered on the radar screen of Democratic politics. And since then, no Democratic presidential candidate has found a reason to come back on from the Democratic Party. And I think that people feel that sense that they have fallen away. And, and that's part of the explanation. And then to be, I concede I've gone on longer than I should, but Chicago is a huge piece of my family history. We're from Chicago and I worked at the Chicago Tribune for, for nine years. And it's a place that today is, by many measures, the most segregated place in America. And I think it has been for me the place where I've really come to understand how the effects of that racial segregation is felt across all measures of human experience, across education, health, and and of course, wealth. And I've written about the ways in which that has been experienced in predominantly black neighborhoods in Chicago, but really through individual lives. And that's that's how I chose those three places and, and why I hope that if you put them together, you can get a portrait of America today. On a personal note, my family's also from Chicago. I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, but my mom is from Park Ridge, if you know the yeah, <laughs> Chicago sure. suburbs. I just this week passed my nine-year anniversary of leaving the United States. And I just wanted to know more on, I guess, like on a personal level for you, obviously you talk about these kinds of things in more in-depth ways throughout the book, but when it came to actually returning to the U.S., Do you feel like you really saw those things and personally felt those differences beyond it just being in a slightly more like subtle way and through looking at the economic picture and things like that? Do you feel like on a personal level, you really felt those differences when you did come back? Absolutely. It's really, and I'm glad you asked it, Sarah, because it is almost visceral. The feeling of coming home to a place that feels encoded in your DNA at one level or another, and then seeing things and how they have changed is just feels on a purely sensory and sentimental level. You just feel it much more deeply than you would if it was a place that you were dropping into for the first time. There's a wonderful history here of like people coming back to their home country and trying to take stock of it. And I cower in the shadow of one especially great example. There was a writer named John Gunther who came back in the 1940s to Chicago, also a Chicagoan. And he had been in Europe and been in the Pacific covering the wars. And he came back to this, he was one of America's great international correspondents. And he returned home. And as he described it, he said, I felt like a man from Mars. And that just resonated with me hugely. He ended up writing a book called Inside USA, where he traveled around and documented everything he saw. But there was one moment for me, especially, Sarah, that that drove this home. I came back and I was on my very first trip out of Washington in 2013. I was going somewhere. I was going to uh, Philadelphia and I'm sitting, coming home in the Amtrak station in Philadelphia. And I'm watching this video on the screen in the Amtrak terminal, in which the video is a demonstration of And it's a public service announcement telling us how to respond in the event of a mass shooting. And it's telling us to hide behind a pillar or to throw our suitcase at somebody who might be 
opening fire at us. And I really, honestly, it was staggering because this is such a specifically American phenomenon, these kinds of mass shootings, and are so bewildering, honestly, to other parts of the world and to me because I had been abroad for a decade. And I sat there and I'm looking around the sitting area and I seem to be the only one who's somewhat agitated by this video. And I felt I had that moment of thinking, I really am a man from Mars right now. Just before we go to our Mr. question, on that experience of returning to the US and returning to those bases that you're so familiar with, was there anything that completely surprised you about what, what you found uh, or, or, or that you just hadn't expected? I think I was astonished by the degree to which we were, in fact, receding within these geographical and psychological interiors of our own, of the, the, these kinds of what we call them filter bubbles in technology terms. What I was really overwhelmed by was the sense that in this period in which we were all on the most superficial level celebrating the age of connectivity and the age of network effects and how we were all suddenly connected one click away and so on. And since I should say, since then, of course, we've all taken a much more sort of gimlet-eyed approach to that period of technological connection, but it was extraordinarily visible when I came back to the US in 2013 to feel the way in which segregation of the mind and of the experience was one of the dominant features that I saw. It was within vulnerable communities, particularly communities of color. And I saw it also in the wealthiest places in the country that people were facing, sometimes despite their best efforts, but were receding inward because of all of these underlying political and, and economic uh, forces. And I, I think that became the subtext for what I was se seeking to write was this segregation of the mind and how it was that this came to be. And that that is actually also in its own way a feature of the post 9-11 world, because we had that moment, that glimmer of at least perceived unity in which barriers were eroded in that period after 9-11. And, and now we look back on it with the recognition that, that was somewhat of an illusion, or at least a much more ephemeral fact than we thought. And I, I, that for me, I've been reckoning with it ever since. I actually did want to ask something before we move on to the listener question, which is, I think maybe 10 years ago, or maybe a little bit more than 10 years ago, I think there was this idea, maybe you could actually say even before 9-11, and 9-11 is where you see a shift, maybe like in the Obama era, there was this kind of idea, I think in American minds, and especially on the American left, the liberal left at least, that there was an inevitability of social progress, of liberal, progressive ideas that were just always going to be moving in that direction. And I feel like over the last, even just in the last few weeks, but particularly in the last, I guess you could say, 10 years, that doesn't really seem to be the case anymore. And do you think that, that is the lesson, I guess, what you could say from whether it's 9-11 or whether it's, it's the Capitol Hill riots as a sort of peak of that phenomenon, that this yeah. idea that it's inevitable is just not necessarily the case and that there are different reactions to different events and not that we're on a knife's edge, but that there's a lot right. of different ways that America can be moving. I think there's something very interesting there. And this sense of this sudden awareness of the this sort of slightly discomforting recognition that there is nothing inevitable about social progress has been a huge fact of the last 10 years. I'll tell it just very briefly. There was a moment in the book that is 
for me brings this to life, which is that I had this odd, somewhat coincidental experience of having met and interviewed Barack Obama a long time ago. It was in 1999 and he was running for Congress. He was a law professor back then. And I was a baby reporter in Chicago. And he was such a he was such an unlikely winner. In fact, he didn't get trounced, but that's why they assigned me to cover the race. So I go and I interview Obama and I won't go into all the details about how I somewhat really did not use the opportunity as brilliantly <laughs> as a more sophisticated reporter at that point might have. But one thing that comes through that I felt very strongly was I walked out of there, like everybody, frankly, who met Obama in those years, came out of there really just energized by what he represented. And he exuded this kind of optimism, the kind of language that we would hear from him five years later when he talked about the idea of no blue states or red states. And he inhabited that and he offered that to people. And there's a reason why he then ignited as a political figure. And what we, all of us, I think, who have followed politics so closely, or particularly over the last five years, will remember that moment when he, Barack Obama, at the end of his presidency in 2016, was trying to make sense of the election of Donald Trump. Here it is, eight years after the election of the first black president. And Obama's language to describe this was that he'd come to embrace more fully the idea that history zigs and zags, and it doesn't move in this elegant one direction. And that can either sound like an admission, a sort of concession to failure, or it can be a way of sustaining yourself in the darker moments. And I've tried to hold that in my mind uh, over the last few years, as things have gotten very dark at some moments, because and then this will be a radical conclusion to mention to you both, which is actually come out of this project feeling quite optimistic, because I am struck by the degree to which the pendulum really does swing. And it doesn't swing by itself. It has to be pushed. And sometimes it's pushed by very bad actors in a direction against progress. But it does swing. It is this one feature of American political history is that we have this sort of irascible tendency for self-correction. And it doesn't always work perfectly, but there are moments where we find our way back to the path. And I am struck that is something in very messy terms that we may be seeing. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That brings us to our You Ask Us question. And this week, it goes as follows. What do you think the chances are of a Trump-style president coming back to power in the near future? Obviously very relevant to the idea that the pendulum might swing back once more in a darker direction, particularly from the time you spent traveling the country, going to areas that voted Trump. What do you make of that? I think the chances are high. And, and it worries me greatly. I think there is, the reason why I say that is that the features that made him president were only partly specific to him. The fact that he had this pre-existing television celebrity, the fact that he has this kind of, I would call it a kind of sulfurous charisma that allows him to say whatever he wants and have people believe it. I, I think that is Trumpian, but the elements that created his moment, meaning radical income inequality of a kind we haven't seen in generations, meaning the sense of particularly among conservative white Americans in parts of the country that they are losing, quote unquote, their way of life, that feel that perception, that is still there, and it's getting more acute. And I think those phenomena are driving the, the possibility for a political opportunist and we may not even know his or her name yet, to seize on that and to assemble those pieces again. And Donald Trump may well run again in, in 2024. It's the only thing he seems to have going for him now. And yet he might lose. But I think we, we need to be alert to the possibility that the underlying forces that created him are still very present in American life. Sarah, particularly coming from such a crucial swing state as Ohio, what, what's your view on that? Well, this is the thing is I, I agree with Evan. And I think it's really important to point out those underlying things versus I think there's it's very easy to get into a conversation that looks at Trump in a much more surfacey way, looking at, I think the celebrity element is important, but almost just looking at it from a celebrity perspective, a sort of very fittingly an unstatesmanlike character. And and I think that's where people go, oh, are we going to have The Rock as president? Are we going to have Joe Rogan as president? And I think those are, I don't think that is the kind of president we're going to have when we say a president like Trump. I think it could, I think there's always a chance there could be a celebrity. But I think, like Evan pointed out, like Trump was a very specific kind of celebrity. The fact that he had this kind of like mass, yeah, the, the television audience that went across demographics. The fact that he's always been like this and has always been this political voice. He's the founder, the spearheader of the Obama birther movement. But I don't think it's his celebrity necessarily. I think it's more about those forces that are at play, the fact that he can appeal to them and that it doesn't have to be a celebrity 
that fills that position. But also, I don't think it's necessarily going to be someone like another politician. Like, I don't think Ted Cruz, for example, that or Mike Pence, like you, these extreme politicians, they don't fill that brief. But yeah, I think it it is almost inevitable that we'll have probably a nominee. I don't know if I may be being a little bit too strong in saying that, but that looks something like Donald Trump, but at least candidates that gain a lot of popularity in that. I think we've actually ended up talking ourselves to what is, to my mind, has been like the core idea behind this book. I, I started this with this parable about the idea that there is always the possibility for a wildfire. It's just about what lights the spark. And this is an idea informed partly by my years living overseas. This is one of the old political chestnuts from Chairman Mao in China, who used to say that a single spark can start a prairie fire. And the reason why that idea resonates with me is that it didn't have to be Trump. There was somebody else who could have come along and galvanized that moment in the same way that it didn't have to be 9-11. And I think what I'm in a quiet way, what I'm pleading for on these pages is for us to recognize these underlying political and economic forces, whether it is about financialization of the economy or the the nationalization of our politics that pulls people out of their communities and makes them feel as if they're part of this existential national struggle, or ultimately the racial segregation that we see in so much of the United States on a, a much larger level than even it was in some places in the 1960s. And I think those are the blinking alarms that tell us that we could yet again have somebody like Donald Trump if we don't address the, the root causes. And that wildfire metaphor seems to have run all the way through this conversation. It didn't have to be 9-11, as, as you put it like that. The forces that were, that were unleashed there were building already. It didn't have to be January the 1st and the Capitol on that particular day. It didn't have to be Donald Trump. I think it's a very neat way of visualizing these, as you say, these underlying forces. Yeah, absolutely. One quick observation just from here in Europe is that certainly here, it is often brought up in conversations about the transatlantic relationship that Europe should be prepared for the possibility the US wants more returns to a kind of America first type president, leading to a lot of hedging in the sort of geopolitical decisions that Europe is making, which isn't, of course, to say that Europe is, is immune from this sort of thing. We have our own Trumps, we have uh, Viktor Orban, among others. But it, it's interesting how much that's become baked into the assumptions about the future of the US. You know, I think I'm going to test my both my musical and physics knowledge here. But the image that comes to mind is that the, as the pendulum swings in American politics, and it is getting like a metronome effect, that we come to assume that there will be this dramatic counter reaction to whatever the moment is. And I, I feel that when I talk to European friends about the way that American politics is moving, there is this general assumption that for every action, there's going to be an equal and perhaps mm. even more violent reaction. And I think that's accurate, actually. Those, those seem to be two powerful images to end on, the, the wildfire and the, and the swinging pendulum. With that, we come to our final section in which we look ahead to the world over the next week or so. Evan, as you're our guest, why don't you go first? What are you looking ahead to? at the moment. Yeah, I'm looking... This is probably quite a big moment. <laughs> well, I suppose so. Yeah, I will. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm also looking with great unease, I have to say, at a date on the calendar, which is September 18th, a little bit beyond our specific week. But it is an important and strange date because that's a, a moment that's been selected for a march in Washington, what could end up being something quite unpleasant by members of the far right, or in some cases, the mainstream, who are are having a, a rally in defense of the people who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. They've come to describe them now as political prisoners. There is this emerging narrative around that 
as being almost a sort of liberation moment. And we don't yet know whether that September 18th day is going to be a quiet, relatively blunted, symbolic protest by just a few bitter enders, or whether that's going to be this galvanizing thing that creates occasions for more violence. And the reason why I mention it is, even if it's not huge, if it has moments of unrest, that is continuing this kind of beginning to build this cultural history that started on January 6th in some ways. And I think we three may find ourselves in conversation 20 years from now asking about the 20th anniversary of January 6th and and what we draw from. Mm. And so I'm thinking about that occasion on the 18th as a first test case for that. Definitely worth watching that. Sarah, what about you? Well, after this sobering and enlightening conversation, I think I've picked perhaps what's the stupidest event I could have pulled out of thin air for this section of the podcast. But I am still interested in it for some serious and some unserious reasons. But Donald Trump is making his first appearance, or not first appearance, but first mainstream debut, I feel like, since leaving office in a way that looks like how Trump was before his presidency, essentially, on 9-11, rather than going to a memorial or doing anything remotely respectful, he's going to be calling a boxing match at the Hard Rock Hotel in Florida. And again, I know this is an absolutely absurd thing to be talking about. Can, I, well... can, I, can I intervene to, to, to <laughs> applaud your choice? Because I think what you identified, by the way, Sarah, is something that is this kind of antic and tragic fusion of entertainment culture and political culture, which is something that is like, you cannot understand our politics without acknowledging that bizarre fusion. And he is just elevating it to its most cartoonish expression. But I think we all have to take note of it in a sad way. And this is the thing. And, and I don't, I think there's, there's obviously a lot of value in, in, in ignoring what Trump is doing. But I do think that there is because as you say, I don't think he's actually going to go away at least not for a while. I don't know how many years or months or decades that will be. But yeah, I think that why I'm why I'm talking about this on a more serious point is that there is this sort of ridiculous nature in American politics that existed before Trump, but of course Trump epitomizes better than anybody else ever has and I think this is really it and he used to do boxing matches or participate yeah. in boxing matches quite regularly in the noughties and early 2010s if I'm remembering that rightly and I think it is a very interesting element of that part of that kind of right-wing thinking that he represents which is this sort of feign feigning of respect for things when deep down it is all a little bit of a game to you and it's all a little bit of a joke um yeah and so I, yeah. And I find that very interesting and I found the fact that he actually is willing to do this on the 20th anniversary of yeah. 9-11. I, I actually, in a sincere way, putting ironic jokiness aside, actually very interesting as a bellwether for that kind of political thinking. Can I ruin our elegant ending here with one additional <laughs> item, which I just think is, you've just reminded me of something that I think is powerful, which is one of, the, along with John Gunther, one of the books that that really informed my thinking about this period in American life is the book Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And it is this diagnosis of some of the things that you're describing, Sarah, that you know, Postman was writing now 40 years ago, but it reads like prophecy today, the, the union of technology and entertainment and unseriousness. And I've, other friends have read it recently and are marching around quoting it because it's just extraordinary. So I, I leave people with one book recommendation, not my own. That's very welcome indeed. My moment of the next week is rather less 
poignant than either of your, yours, but but I think still significant. Um, next Wednesday, the President of the European Commission, von der Leyen, is giving her annual State of the Union speech. This is a little import from American politics to the EU that was meant to make the office of the President of the Commission a bit, what's the word, presidential. And it will be an interesting one to watch. Obviously, the EU's had a roller coaster year. There were points early in 2021 where the slow rollout of vaccines looked like it could become a, a, an existential problem for the union. It's more or less been able to d- deliver on, on its vaccine promises now. But the question is really what happens next for, for the European Union? We've got a German election coming up in just over two weeks now. France has an election season early next year. And the sense in Brussels is that once you get those two out of the way, you've got a new chancellor in Berlin and a new president or the same president possibly in Paris. That's the chance for the next big reform push. So I think we'll be looking also for examples of where von der Leyen wants to take the mm. beyond the election season in, in France and Germany. So I'll be watching that. All that remains on that is to say a very big thank you to Evan Osnos for joining us again on World Review. Thank you very much, Evan. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And a reminder that Wildland, The Making of America's Fury is out on September 14th in the US and September the 16th in the UK. I'd like to say thank you to Sarah, too, for stepping in as co-host this week. As a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening and until next week. 